Welcome to Below the Line, where we talk about making movies from the set perspective. My name is Skid. I was an assistant director in Hollywood for the better part of eight years, and now I'm not. Today's episode is not organized around a specific project. Instead, all of my guests are military veterans who, separate from their service, made or are in the process of making careers in Hollywood. Myself, I'm an Air Force veteran. We'll talk more about that later as part of our discussion, but first, let me introduce my guests. Vince Duque. You graduated from West Point in 1991 and spent three years in the Army before moving to Hollywood. Yeah, I was an Army officer in the Armour branch, so I had four M1A1 tanks that I commanded in Germany. Spent all of my time there, including a stint uh, at, at Airborne School and the Armour basic course for six months. And then I got out after President Clinton uh, drew down the military when he first got into office. And a couple of years later, I sort of rolled into uh, the film industry. Welcome. Thomas Kreuger, welcome back. You've done two stints with the Army before and after your time as a film set medic. You first served in 1992 and went back in the Army Reserves in 2002. Yes, I got into the film industry actually through my military experience. I served in the infantry, uh, became a combat lifesaver, which was something that infantry guys did, which is like an ad hoc medical person with the infantry. Kind of leveraged that little bit of experience to get my EMT, emergency medical technician, and then I ended up working in the film industry as a set medic. After 9-11 in 2002, I went to the reserves and then the, in the National Guard and, and did time in the film industry uh, before going to Iraq. Then I ended up in Iraq. Well, Thomas, thanks for joining us today. Uh, my final guest is Nick Schleier. Nick, you were in the Navy from 1988 to 91, but only recently started your career in Hollywood. You're currently a DGA trainee. Yes. Hey, Skid. Actually, Thomas and I were probably in Desert Shield and Desert Storm at the same time. I was floating around on a piece of metal. Go Navy! And uh, I think Thomas was probably in a much hotter place than I was. So, so the only reason I'm in the training program is because of two vets. One vet, uh, Mark Porterfield, Army again. So I owe Army a lot. I was working. He got me a, sh a job in locations on Fear the Walking Dead. So I was on, I was on uh, Flight Four Six Two, Fear the Walking Dead, and somebody suggested I apply to the training program. And then Mark said you should call this guy Vince Duque and ask him about you know the training program. Well, Vince uh, grilled me for like, it seemed like four hours on the phone about uh, what I wanted to do with my life. And uh, at the end of it, you know, he kind of uh, gave me his blessing. So two army vets actually got me in the training program. And so I do owe army uh, at least two favors. You mean West Point? I mean, West, oh, that's right. They're both West Point. Excuse me. Yeah. yeah. Cappuccino <laughs> army. Yeah. You know, Nick, I hate that you phrase it that way because that means that I, despite my Air Force, also have a debt to West Point. I did ROTC in college um, and was committed from high school. And so the military had my number no matter what. And I decided late in college that I actually wanted to work in Hollywood. It wasn't my original intent. Uh, I convinced the Air Force to let me do combat camera. So I had a little bit of experience with production and such before moving to Hollywood. But when I got there, I was starting out as a PA as well. And someone also introduced me to Vince Duque, who briefed me and gave me guidance on getting into the training program. Nonetheless, Nick, I do think we agreed that Navy and Air Force were going to stick together against the Army guys on this podcast if it came down to service rivalry. That deal's still <laughs> on, I think, Nick. It is. The deal's still service. on. Okay. Yeah, it's still on. I think, I think I'm the only one here that 
I've never met Vince Duque until now. Glad to meet you, Vince. <laughs> Thomas, if you want to go back into the training program and become a DGA trainee yourself, you should talk to Vince. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But uh, Thomas, go from there. When did you decide you wanted to work in Hollywood? You mentioned being in the Army first and getting your, me- your initial medical training there, but then you brought it to Los Angeles. Yeah, well, I think the thing is, for me, I missed the military when I got out. There was a time when I was reconsidering whether or not I should go back in. And, and I, was, I was already working in the medical field at the time. I was very much interested in working in the medical field. But when I got introduced to film through a friend and I saw the setup of how the production is ran, it's kind of a, it's an organization where everyone's working on a mission, just kind of like the military is. It has this sort of camaraderie setup to about it, which is similar to the military. There's there's all these sort of things that appealed to me and kind of was kind of very natural to me. And this idea that I could be a medic in this environment was really, really attractive to me where I was. And that's how I kind of fell into it. The structure of the film industry, despite a lot of the personalities, it was very much, it was set up like the Navy. Uh, if you think about the various departments, like you think about the production on a ship, you know, you got your commander, which is maybe the, the producer and the director. You got your ADs, which are kind of like your senior NCOs or, or your, your commander's lower ranking officers. And then you've got your chiefs, which is kind of like your keys and so forth. And, every, and they're in charge of departments. You know what I'm saying? So, so there is this structure that was very, that was very familiar to me. And it, it, I just kind of like embraced it. And I felt really at home being a medic in that. I loved it. You know, Thomas, I want to come back to that. I think the organizational similarities between film sets and the military is something we can talk about in depth. First, though, I want to hear from you, Vince. When did you decide you were going to work in Los Angeles? When I got out of the military, I thought I was going to be in advertising. I was a huge sort of just do it, um, the Nike um, campaign disciple as a gymnast. And I really enjoyed copywriting and sort of what, how those commercials inspired me. So I wanted to be involved in that. But because I wanted to get back into training and gymnastics and try to qualify for USA championships, I declined all my opportunities to uh, be in advertising and move back to Los Angeles with no real thought about what I was going to do. And then about a, or about three months, actually, after coaching uh, one of the girls, her mother suggested a job for me because she was, um, she had a manager who, who was a producer and he needed an officer production assistant. So I said, yeah, sure, I'll do that. And I did that for a couple of weeks. And the manager, who was also a director, got a, an Energizer Bunny commercial gig as a director and he asked me to be a production coordinator if I wanted to do that. And I said, yeah, sure. And I basically lied my way through the job, made up everything I could make up just to make things happen and realized how similar being in the military was to film production, almost like I was training to become someone seriously involved in the industry. Thanks, Vince. So Nick, of all of us, you actually had the largest gap between your military service and when you showed up in Hollywood. What's your story? I'm a theater grad from the University of Kansas. So I mean, I've been, I've, and I was an actor first. I was, I was in the, been in the Screen Actors Guild since 95. So, I mean, I've been around uh, production, whether it's stage production or film production for 30 years. But in the military, I wasn't, I wasn't doing any, any production work at all. And Vince is talking about marketing. I had a production company 
uh, was a partner in a production company called Magic Bullet Media for eight years. And we did uh, digital content for major brands like Nike. I did, you know, LeBron James uh, events in New York City and, you know, I had three camera units filming stuff like that. I, I worked in production kind of on the fringes of TV and film production. Uh, did, you know, EPKs and things like that uh, for years, you know, from the military. Since then, I've kind of always been around the fringes of production and uh, had kind of the same affinity for advertising and marketing that Vince did. The uh, crossover into the training program and being a production assistant really came because I, my business kind of failed on the tax side. So got in trouble with some tax things and ended up as a PA. You know, so it's like, you know, life, you know, pitches you a curveball and I just kind of uh, decided to, you know, hit it as far as I could. Well, Nick, since you've been in the training program now going on two years, do you also see the similarities between your military background and how things are run on set? Yeah. I mean, Vince and I talked about that before I came in and it, it can definitely work to your, in, in your favor. It can also be a disadvantage. And I think that the disadvantage that I see in being a vet and really something that I work to just monitor in myself is being flexible. You know, we can be very regimented as as a former military because we were kind of taught to wake up at a certain time and do certain things at a certain time of day. I think some vets are are not as flexible as they could be in situations on set because things change quickly and we have to be kind of fluid, you know, fluid and and very flexible. And I think sometimes vets who expect it to be a certain way can fall into a trap of not being flexible. Nick, I think what's interesting about that, going back to what Thomas said earlier about the way we're structured, I think in my experience, the reason the military and the film industry use the same organizational structure, it's so that the organizations can respond quickly to change. That by pushing responsibility and expertise to the bottom of an organization, where the guy doing the job knows his job better than anyone else, the structure we set up is a leadership structure where people are pointing in the direction, but then the parts can self-adjust and recognize how they reconnect with the other parts. And so whether it's the enemy is over this hill, the that hill, or this actor slept in, now we're going to shoot a different scene. Everybody understands how that affects them personally and is able to make the transition to a new situation. Yeah. I mean, we had, you know, the other day, one of our actors, I'll keep it general, uh, just didn't come in for whatever reason. And we had to, we had to scrap the whole day and bring in, you know, bring in actors and bring in new scenes. It's pretty amazing when you sit there and watch the way production teams respond to, you know, negative stimulus like that. And it's definitely, it's just, it's a military thing. It is just like the military. You know, we have to turn the ship around and do something different than we plan to do that day. Just to kind of build on what you just said, Nick, one of the things um, I noticed when I went back into the military after being in the film industry, I was frustrated with the military because I felt that the competencies that were in the film industry would have been better suited to actually wage war in Iraq in terms of especially the logistics in, in, in the decision making, the professionalism. It's a little frustrating to me because oftentimes, you know, the military becomes some sort of standard of like hierarchical competencies. And the film industry structure all the way through is incredibly just unknown to as, as a business model, you know, in terms of how to get a project done. I, quite frankly, you know, working in the federal government, am not afraid to say, well, I know how you guys do things here, but I just came out of the film industry. And when I worked in film, this is how we did it. This is really the best way to do it. In the film industry, you either make it or you get fired in the film industry. There's no like, you screwed up, so we're going to put you in this other area. 
every show could be your last show and you're always working for your next show. So there's almost sort of like Darwinistic professional aspects of working in film that really hones certain skills in that same structure that may be military that the military doesn't have. I hear what Nick is saying. Nick's negotiating that a little bit because you can't be too rigid in the film industry. And you and, and actually, you have to adjust more in the film industry, but still stay within that structure in a weird way. So it's, it's an interesting point. One of the disadvantages or misconceptions that, that it's possible for military people to bring to the film industry is sort of a, a different understanding about how decisions actually get made. Um, in the military, in the end, if we disagree, we can do a sleeve check and see who's going to make the final decision because rank trumps, I think think other experience. But in the film industry, your loyalties are not to the supposed rank of another person on set. Your loyalties are the person that brought you in in your specific chain of command. So consequentially, as an assistant director, I had to learn to motivate people without having actual authority over them and to figure out how to create a team environment so that when I asked for something or quiet on set is is really a command, um, how do you get people to respond to that when you don't have the rank? And I think some veterans coming into the film industry that could prove extremely frustrating where you've gotten used to relying on rank to move things forward rather than actually building teams that both organizations are trying to achieve, but rank can be a crutch. Nick, earlier you were talking about flexibility, and I wanted to touch upon that further from my standpoint, in which a lot of folks who aren't from the military, who are in the film industry, have this weird misnomer that being in the military, we weren't flexible, but we were, particularly as you know, army officers or officers in the military, we were trained to deal with change, particularly in combat. In the army, you'd have an operations order, and then the joke would essentially once you cross the line of departure or left the assembly line, which you've all gathered, and then cross the line of departure, which is basically the enemy line, that plan could fall apart. And you had to be ready to be able to be malleable enough to deal with that. I'm able to come up with contingency plans on the fly because that's what I learned from being in the Army. Now, in terms of flexibility, I feel other veterans have struggled in the industry with is something that you brought up, which is rank. Being flexible in terms of where you get your next sort of order or where, where the order is sort of like the order of authority comes from, from show to show to show, because it's always different. A, a good example would be if you're running first team at base camp, your second AD and your first AD might be your boss on paper, but you might be sort of under the thumb of the hairstylist department head because this person is the main star's uh, hire. So so everything sort of revolves around what this person is, go- is going to do within the context of whatever logical, logistical decisions you have to make. I find that's where vets have a problem with flexibility into dealing with different personnel, leadership styles, changing leadership styles, changing loyalties, not knowing where our loyalties are coming from, and that sort of thing. Because in the army or in the military, I'm, I'm taking, I'm talking about the army because that's where, that's what I know. That we all sort of are geared toward accomplishing the mission. Whereas in the on a TV show or a, or a movie, you would like to think everyone was focused on accomplishing that mission to make a great show. 
which is completely not true. And it was only until I learned that I needed to understand what every single person's agenda was for that show that I really became a very effective assistant director because then I could sort of understand where they were coming from. But I didn't before because I was always, you know, it was confusing to me. People would get upset or people would have conniptions about something that have zero to do with accomplishing the show and yet you still have to abide by those things. It's like, ironically, the film industry has helped me more working the federal government because... It's very much like, yeah, there's a chain of command, but it's about knowing where people sit, where the roles they are, who their loyalties to, trajectorying like the connections and who you're talking to, finding the real power behind the power, so to speak. You're doing a lot of that. And I believe that the film industry actually helped me prepare me for that as well. I mean, we could do a show on like people that work in federal government that used to work in film and how it's that influence just as easy as we do <laughs> one of the militaries. It'd be a very interesting conversation nonetheless. But the film industry is an incredible, there's so much to unpack there. I'm surprised people haven't written a book like on like just breaking down management structures within the film industry and how those, how the, what works, what does have to be applied. It seems like it would be a perfect Harvard Business Review sort of journal of some sort. This mysterious organization, weirdly, that is like rife with just incredible competencies and bureaucratic functions and still has to maintain a direct mission. I think what you're also seeing is the difference between Army and Navy, I, the relationship ships um, between how the army has to adapt and overcome to a situation sort of thing. Like, you know, in the army, we're like adapt and overcome. All plans go to shit after the first bullet. I mean, these are things in the army you hear all the time. I noticed a lot of my Navy uh, colleagues, they were, because of the relationship they have with the machine and the need to keep that machine running through whatever the trauma, whatever it's going through, precision is everything. Staying on a schedule, focus, and that the discipline to maintain that is really huge. It's it's kind of different kind of discipline and structures that the Navy people have than what us Army people have. So even to, not all military vets are the same. That's a good point. If you go on a six-month med cruise, uh, which I went on several, you know, it's like work on a feature film you know it's like you you get underway there's a plan for where we're going you know we're scheduled stops in you know spain and israel and we're going to go through the suez canal and we're going to stop in egypt and then we're going to singapore and and along the way there are military exercises that, that we do so it, it, it was like that and you're going away from your family and friends too and you're going onto a weird sleep schedule just like you would on a feature so yeah i, I that's a good point thomas i i want to pitch something about need to know and confidential information and uh control of confidential information because you know the rumor comes down to the ad trailer hey we're not doing episode 14 uh but don't tell everybody that's in a small circle. When does it get out even to the keys to the, you know, someone had made the reference to the keys as, you know, lieutenants. And when does it get out to NCOs even further down the line? Do the PAs and every grip on the set find out that we're not doing episode 14? Did the general tell somebody, uh, tell the wrong person and the need to know gets opened up to everybody? Um, because as ADs, uh, as a medic, you probably uh, wait for the rumors to come down too. But as ADs, it's like the rumor hits the trailer and we should control it, but sometimes it doesn't get controlled. You know, it goes out to everybody. And did you have similar issues when you were in the military? You think similarly the, the scuttlebutt well, on a ship is hard to control? Yeah, scuttlebutt, that's the word. And I mean, I was secret intel. I had a pretty high clearance. I was not top secret, but I had. A, I worked in the combat direction center and I worked where a lot of very specific, you know, military information was going on. Uh, at one point in time, I had Dick Cheney and Colin Powell over my right and left shoulder working on a computer that I was working on. Um, so I, I was 
pretty deep into some confidential information. But Scuttlebutt was a wholly different story. You know, Scuttlebutt was more like, where's the ship going? What are we actually going to do? And as an operations specialist in the Navy, I was basically an AD in the Navy. It's kind of what I did in the Navy, and it really transferred well to being an assistant director trainee. As a medic, you're often privy to, on the, whether in, in medicine, generally speaking, especially on set, people come and talk to you all the time about like medical issues. Not only do you, they, they come up with a medical issue, but then they tell you a personal story to go with it. So you start, you know, the medic is kind of like the medic and the priest at the same time. You're the guy that's really not part of the operations, but you're the go-to guy to just talk about everything else. And I always took that role very, very seriously. It's like, you know, you're telling me in confidence, I don't say nothing. You know, I even to this day, now that I'm out, I, I still don't say what people have told me. I, that's completely confident because I think that being a medic and being in that role was like a really important aspect of the job. It's necessary for the job because of all the time we're spending on set together. You know, there has to be that person you could talk to about certain things. And uh, so there, there was there was that element. So I take your point about the confidentiality. It's, it's a really important thing. I want to share a thought I had earlier in response to Vince speaking about the specifics of uh, people's agenda on set. I think where we observe the similarities between the uh, structure on set and the structure in the military, I think they both also share a similar point of failure. And that's that is when people start to think that their job or their section is more important than the overall organizational mission, um, whether it's the actor that won't relate to the schedule overall, or um, I think even some of the examples that Vince pointed out. I think similar things happen in the military. Um, and yes, uh, learning to navigate that, Thomas, as you described in federal service now, I would see the same things in the military. And yes, on set as well. But those are all points that the system of quick response is not necessarily built to uh, accommodate very well. Because once those parts start becoming focused on their mission rather than the overall mission, they no longer adjust properly uh, when change happens. And that becomes really, if, this was a, if it was a military, it would be a normal bureaucracy, you say that's a leadership issue. It's still is a leadership issue. The problem is in the film industry, sometimes you can't replace that leadership because of extra issues around, just like what Vince was talking about, certain loyalty. So that key person may be absolutely the worst key you ever worked with. And they're not helping with the mission, but you know you can't get rid of that person because they're really in with the DP. And you know you need the DP because that director is not able to shoot without that DP. Because in fact, the DP is actually making the movie. So, you know, all these things start stringing together and understanding that, that having that situational awareness which is also something you have to do in the military is having situational awareness is really important. Agreed. I want to talk about the agenda issue as well um, and what master people are serving on set. Recognizing that I think is really important as an AD. The key makeup who is attached to number one on the call sheet and, you know, has the ear of number one on the call sheet. So you have to treat that person with a certain level of respect and decorum. No matter what kind of a person they are, keeping it general and kind, you have to really let that flow. When I'm, when I'm in the trailer and a key comes in breathing hard from base camp, you know, I have to realize that they have number one's ear and I am going to have to find a way to accommodate what they need at that moment. Even if it seems like they're attacking me in the trailer, I have to, as an AD, just absorb that. In the military, we may not have that kind of, of freewheeling communication. You know, I think I remember in the military, there was a way to talk to somebody who, you know, was basically your commander or in the chain of command recognize that someone above you is someone you didn't speak to a certain way. So that we don't necessarily have that 
strictly in production. Um, I wanted to uh, pitch something out to you guys about communication. It was a challenge for me as a trainee to come in as a first day trainee, listen to channel one and even realize what everybody was saying. Because I had done some DGA work before, but not very many days. I was challenged in my first job in understanding what someone was asking me to do on channel one. Whereas in the military, I was a radio communicator. I was speaking to F-14 Tomcats and uh, surface naval vessels on radio communication. You know, I knew code words, things like the word bingo in the Navy, which means return to base. You know, I don't know what it means in the Army. You know, it might mean a game that everybody plays uh, when you're hanging yes. out in the tent. Yeah, I think it means you <laughs> yeah. won. Basically. Yeah, <laughs> bingo, we won. But, but in, in, the, mil- in the, the Navy, it meant a certain thing. But, you know, I, and, I, and so I had a, a whole lexicon in the Navy. And, you know, when we're talking about things on channel one, you know, and someone says, I'm 10-1 or uh, we're on the martini. I didn't necessarily know those things when I first came in. So it was, I was kind of um, on a treadmill at number nine when I jumped into it to catch up with the language. Yeah, uh, for those, <laughs> we all know, 10-1 meaning you're going to the bathroom, martini meaning you're on the, the last shot of the night. Right, right, there we go. We could, we could have a whole list. In the army, they, they throw out these phrases about what battalion you are and where you're located. And I mean, I have no idea what they're talking about. You know, Air Force probably had the same thing, probably had phrases that no one in the Army or Navy would understand. As far as Air Force terminology, any word with more than two syllables was probably not going to make an Army person's list, right, Thomas? That's, uh, you got to keep things much simpler than that if you're dealing with the Army. Air Force, we have a just I've heard that's what they do. <laughs> I've heard that's what they do in Chair Force Incorporated, but I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're going to the officers' club. Uh, <laughs> but you know the politics of Channel One, and I don't know, Thomas, if you met, monitored Channel One when you All were. The time. Yeah, I, I lived yeah, on so, Channel One. Yeah, and you could you could read between the lines, like you knew what you know yeah, what people yeah, yeah. were saying, you know, and you could tell by the tone or pitch of somebody's voice, or even just a heavy sigh or a you know long pause or the snark yes yeah the snark (laughs) the sarcasm that comes over channel one is uh it's definitely a thing in itself but yeah i mean you can't pick up on it unless you're in you're in it you know you can't have to be in that uh that click and being a medic is a very unique space as i'd mentioned but even in the army it's a medic it's like no one really sees you as part of the chain of command they really see you as an accessory so it allows you a lot more flexibility like even in the film industry i lived on channel one with the ad's why because if you need the medic you need a contact on channel one you know it's it is if sometimes i'd always have to remind myself when things were stressed out for the ad's that that wasn't my problem mm. because you know you live in their head for the entire show and then they need someone to lock up somewhere and i had to always say no i'm not going to be the guy to go and be that guy to lock up some medics may do it they just may but I was like, no, I have to be here. And so there's a certain level of discipline and structure and remembering your place in the organization, irrespective of the fact that it may be seductive or you may be thinking that you're being proactive to jump into that AD world. It, yeah, going back to your idea of communications and feeling like you want to be part of it, but knowing that you're not part of it, but knowing what's going on <laughs> was always a challenge for me as a met, and specifically as a medic in field, you know? Yeah, yeah. People would always always ask us, you know, are we going to lunch on time? Or what time are we wrapping? tonight or you know they they ask ad's for you know even the trainee ad you know has more information than most people on the set do and i think we're talking about need to know and communication what do i actually tell somebody the medic i would probably tell them almost anything kind of like a good medic understands that's 
when the ADs tell you something, that's not for the rest of the crew. Right. It's not right. their place to tell the rest of the crew. And I've had conversations with medics I've brought on say, if you hear something on channel one, that's not for you to then turn around and tell the key grip. You know, don't do that. That's not your role. You did, you take it in, you understand it, you know. But, you know, so there's these inherent small rules, rules you have to play based on the role you are. And, how, and going back to what you say of confidentiality and getting privy information, that is the same thing as when I was working in the, in the when I was working, uh, working the, uh, in the military, but actually in the army, I, the commander would say, we're doing this. The first sergeant would be like, we're going here. But it's not my place then to actually insert myself into that chain of influence or part of that, be that part of that communication. You know, and so this is a, it's, a, it's a, just a unique role, I think, for the medic. I think no other position is like. Let's talk some guys about um, experiences on set where your military background may have helped in unexpected ways well i could tell you in a practical matter i had more than a few times where going back to this kind of ties in with nick we'll talk about flexibility thomas the medic really cool on set everything's fine but then the minute we had like a trauma an accident something like that i'd go into military mode and i would just jump into command and control mode and that's when having where the ad's are your ear being part of that and then I would step in, tell the ADs what I uh, what I need from them. It'd be very exacting as if I was in the military. So there was this sort of like schizophrenia about me. I would be laid back. And then when something would happen, it would be like, okay. Because at the end of the day, when the, when the ADs are writing that report and they have to explain what they did in that given situation for the AD report, it had to be reportable. I'm going to have to be accountable for what happened. And the AD, the first AD especially needs to be accountable for what happened. So it was worth stepping up at that moment and not act like I didn't know what to do. Not to mention, if you don't come up strong as a first, as a medic on a, for an accident, everybody else starts freaking out because they feel like no one's in control and it makes the matter, it makes things worse. So being confident, being there to treat the, the person that got hurt, especially if it's a trauma was, and we, I've had a few traumas, Armageddon, Pearl Harbor specifically, I had a few, um, Seabiscuit, it was the one. And in all those three situations, I learned that turning, turning it on, being that military guy was a benefit. For me, as an army officer doing stunts, was a very smooth transition from army officer to assistant director because I would conduct the organizational process very similar to conducting my platoon operations. So for example, we'd have the call sheet or a production meeting or even a meeting, let's say a safety meeting about the stunt, right? We would gather all the department heads and the crew who would have this meeting I would let every department head talk about their concerns. I would talk about safety concerns. And I always thought about things in terms of the operation order or the op order, as it's called in its acronym in the Army, which is basically the uh, written format of how the mission is supposed to be executed. So I would have sort of a verbal operations order that I would brief the crew or the troops, if you will. And then in terms of a stunt, I would do different kinds of rehearsals. So I would do a diagram rehearsal just to kind of show the X's and O's, like a playbook. And then I would do a sand table rehearsal. So if they're in, if they're involved cars or people, cast members, I'd have these uh, little, little figures I'd use kind of the way architecture firms use people to show their sort of layout of what their conceptual design is. You know, back in the military, we use these little mini tanks and mini soldiers and then we would do a stop and go rehearsal and we would continue until we finally executed the stunt safely securely and efficiently but i wouldn't be able to do that as efficiently as i do if it wasn't for the military 
Nick, how about you? Have any of your assignments as a DGA trainee had military aspects or other times your experience became relevant? At first, as like an overall, I would say that when I say to, you know, key grip or the chief lighting technician or anybody that I'm a vet, I always get like immediate street cred, which is nice. It's like it's like when you come in as a trainee, you know, you're, you're looked at as the person who may know the least. But when you say I'm a trainee and I'm a vet, you kind of immediately get at least one step up. With most of those guys, transpo and grip, and they're immediately kind of like, oh, he's a vet. You know, he's new, but he's a vet. On the Orville, we we are, uh, you know, a spaceship with a uh, military structure. I'm not saying I'm a consultant on the show or anything, but I definitely am asked questions about like background performers. Like, would they walk this way? Would they talk this way? Would this officer be also a bartender in the, you know, onboard, you know, bar area? You know, like they ask me questions that are military related. Can I just add one more thing about that? Um, That's your cutoff, Vince. No, yes, of course. Okay. <laughs> Go ahead, Vince. I, I think one of the main one of the main aspect, approaches to being a, an army officer, I take into being an assistant director as a department head. I've always, I was always told to to look at uh, the mission two levels above me. So. What that meant yeah. as a platoon leader was I would look at things as a company commander or even as a battalion commander so that I could anticipate better. I would think more big picture, if you will. And I do that now. And I tell my production assistants, I tell my second ADs to do that now because now as a first assistant director, I think like the director or the executive producer and I incorporate what they might do to involve themselves in the situation based on their itinerary or agenda. And by doing that, it's helped me immensely as an assistant director to sort of transition smoothly as, as I go from job to job to job or you know, as I move up in the in the industry from being a trainee to a second assistant director to a first assistant director and even as a director. Anybody have stories where military actually tripped them up somehow on set? I, here's something that I think a lot of people coming into the film industry from the military, they, they come in with some assumptions. I think the liberal Hollywood assumption trips up a lot of veterans coming in because a lot of veterans come in from more of a conservative background and they just assume that somehow Hollywood's going to be hostile to you if you're a vet. It's not Correct. the case. They're not going to be hostile, but there's almost a defensiveness that I think a lot of, a lot of veterans come in to the film industry. I, I, I remember I was working on um, Mother-in-Law with uh, Jennifer Lopez and um, Jane Fonda. And it was the last show I did before bouncing to Iraq the second time. It was interesting how Jane Fonda was so, so supportive of me. I mean, I tell people that story, you know, here, this is quote unquote Hanoi Jane and all these things about Jane Fonda, all this stuff about Jane, um, Jane Fonda in the public eye. But I remember during the early years of the Iraq war, she was so, she cared very deeply about veterans and soldiers and what the families were going through at a very visceral level. There's this mythos out there about Hollywood that is just simply not true. And I would tell veterans when they come and says, well, forget what you think you know about how quote unquote Hollywood people are like. And that's, that's something that I think a lot of veterans need to pay attention to, I think, in, in terms of and be sensitive about. And this goes across the board to uh, almost any industry or anything you go into. We, we come into those things with misperceptions. But I especially think the Hollywood liberal thing somehow got contorted to mean anti-vet, which is simply not true. I had a similar experience, Thomas, when I was on West Wing um, after 9-11. 
happen um, once uh, production had picked up again. I had one of the producers on that show pull me aside and say, I had reserve status at the time. He said, if you need to go back into the military, then your job here is safe. We will support you on that. And that's a rare thing in Hollywood when people have to switch out all the time. That's not, um, that sort of job protection, I think, isn't something that's offered to everyone on every set. So um, I I was not at risk of um, being deployed. I might have ended up at the Pentagon if some Pentagon folks had been deployed for that, where I was in my reserve combat camera status. But that being said, I was was touched that the folks there were sensitive to it. I got blown up. I was in South Baghdad and I got hit with a bomb and I had my feet shattered in 2005. And Steven Spielberg wrote me a letter telling me, you know, a good a letter, a nice letter, just hoping that I'm well and recover and everything else. And, and I worked with him on Catch Me If You Can. But just to give a sense, just about the, the sense of gratitude that I think, and this, I, we're talking about name people, people know that, but you crew people, other people would reach out and, you know, producers, come out and help my family, for instance. Hey, what can we do for your wife? What can we, you know, I cannot tell you the amount of support that I got as a veteran as I was recovering from Hollywood. I mean, the, the tough decision whether or not I want to go back or not, it was like, you know, this is a community that really likes me. They care about me. They took care of my family. Why would I not go work with them? Why would I not go back in the film industry? This was this what made my departure from Hollywood really, really hard for me because of the people. One thing I wanted to add to something that Thomas said early in the podcast about competencies I was in New Orleans last week and I happened to have drinks with a couple of women who were military wives of former high-ranking army officers. And their first joke to me was, I wonder what that was like working with film crews. You know, could you take your film crew? Like, And they basically were referring to the notion that it must have been difficult working with those film crews because they were all undisciplined or whatever liberal or that sort of thing. And I flat out said to them, I would take any of my film crews any day and take them to war with me, hands down, over my tank platoon that I had when I was in the Army. <laughs> yeah. I mean, some of the UPMs I've worked with are like the best XOs ever. These Some of these unit production managers could do things that are just absolutely amazing logistically and with budgets. And it's scary how competent that level of talk about competencies. And yes, I agree with you, Vince. I could think of like key people where that I've worked with on the, especially on the AD staff that I would have loved to be working at with on certain projects, whether in the military or in government right now. I promise you. <laughs> yeah. Like imagine having your key grip as your your platoon sergeant and then uh, the special effects supervisor as the mortars guy. You know oh what I mean? I mean <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> I know. Imagine how safe it would be. <laughs> Completely, completely. But then again, you know, it just goes back to this, like the inherent sort of Darwinistic standards that are built in the film industry for composite. You can't, there's not a lot of room for error. I mean, if you screw up in the film industry or, or... People know really quickly, and that becomes a point of discussion on your next show. You've got to be, you have to have your A game on all the time. You're always on point when you show up to work. You know, the hardest thing for me coming into government and then still maintain that film industry work ethic was unnerving to my new colleagues. They would be like, well, you should take a day off. Oh, you, why are you working so hard? I didn't know how not to work that hard. I inherently felt I was always under the gun. Even in the role that I was at, I was not. It's something you just kind of take with you. So guys, what would you say as far as advice if we have uh, listeners who might be military themselves and want to transition into the film industry? 
I would say that if you are someone in the military trying to get in the film industry to really hone in on what it is you want to do in the industry, because you can do anything from being in wardrobe to catering to assistant directing, which is more like being a logistician. So not just sort of dabbling in the, you know, I didn't know having gone to West Point, which is not a film school, and transitioning into the industry, I didn't know that there was possibilities to succeed in the industry. But there's so many things that you can do that would welcome your competencies and your your work ethic and your and a lot of the sort of skill sets that you learn in the military would be very applicable in the industry. And if you find other people, find other vets that have been in the industry and you know try to hone in on what you want to do, I think that makes for a smoother transition than it is just stumbling into it. You know, Vince, that reminds me uh, uh, to that point. Um, I think I largely chose the assistant directing path because early on in my Hollywood career, I saw the similarities um, and where my experience was directly relevant. But I wish perhaps in in retrospect that someone had given me some advice to explore every aspect of the film industry overall, rather than just choosing what looked like the best fit, because my military experience would have been helpful other places as well. And it's possible that I put myself on a certain track that, who knows, maybe I'd be doing something different now. I agree. I did the same thing. Kid. I mean, it just seemed like that was the easier transition because I was an army officer. I was a systems engineering major, and I also dealt with systems engineering as an army officer. So the AD world seemed to be the easiest way to become successful, only to realize later on, I sort of discovered, you know, I really enjoyed writing, enjoyed directing, and I was, you know, way far into the process, and I had to sort of re-engineer that path again. Building on it from more of a the enlisted point of view, if you will, I think it, using your military background to come in the come into the film industry is helpful. Know that there's a lot of people that will support you that respect your military background. Liberal Hollywood isn't necessarily anti-vet, but also keep in mind: don't let your military experience, don't wear your military experience. Knowing knowing how to balance that military experience with the situational awareness of where you are. This is a different situation you're in. It's a different culture. Knowing when to push that and when not to push that, and how to how to calibrate that experience is really is a skill set. It's a tool that you have. But if you overdo it, it could really, really hurt you. Um, it could pigeonhole you too. You become that guy. And there's only pro- people only talk to you about those sort of projects. If you're thinking that you're in an exploratory mode where maybe you want to do other things, know when, when to push it and when not to. And always be nice to everybody. Don't treat people their quote unquote rank in Hollywood. Because that PA on this show today could be the assistant director or it could be an associate producer on the next time you re- that that you see them and if you're an asshole when you met them or tra- treat them like they were a, some sort of peon then they're going to remember that about you so be nice to everybody and network as much laterally as you can because in Hollywood people kind of come up together in, in terms of waves you don't want to be always just chasing like you know just always trying to be buddy buddy with the assistant to the director at the expense of everybody else just another little tip I would tell anybody going to Hollywood, especially uh, military people who are used to these hierarchical chains of commands where they think they have to impress the next level up. You know, that ties into um, actually the origin story of my nickname a little. Uh, Skid for me was a high school nickname that I had pretty much 
choked off during college, and then I was Captain S when I was in the military. But when I came to Hollywood on my very first production, I was working for free. There were six Robs or Bobs or Bobbies on the show. And so on day two, I asked someone to call me Skid. The point being a, a couple. One, it's an icebreaker because everybody thinks it's kind of funny and they want to make fun of the name from there. Two, getting to know everybody because um, the, the networking that you're talking about, Thomas, where it's going to go. And then three, it's easy to remember. I mean, if people watch some of my credits and the skid rolls up, people <laughs> know that I worked on that project. It's stuck. I pretty much choked it off again after leaving Hollywood and now, now it's back. Well, for all of you, I'm sure there will be thank yous for your service. And I want to thank you guys for joining me here today. It's been a lot of fun, guys. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks, kid. Been a real pleasure, man. We'll see you guys soon. And that concludes my discussion with military veterans in the film industry. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate us five stars wherever you get your podcasts. Email me your feedback via skid, S-K-I-D, at belowtheline1word.biz. That's B-I-Z. And you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter. On both of those platforms, we're at Pod Below the Line. Thanks, as always, to Curtis Five for our music and John Juan for our logo. Next episode, we're returning to our regular format, and my guests will be three crew members from 2002's Replicate, starring Ali Landry. If you'd like to watch the movie before the podcast, it's available for free on YouTube in eight parts. Search for Replicate, but spell it with the letter K instead of the letter C. Hope you'll join us. 